Greetings from Detroit, this is One Record. My name is Mike Dukevich. I collect records from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Each episode features a single record from my collection. It's always a Detroit record, and it's always an artist or group that I've wanted to know more about. So I find them and ask them to share their stories and reflect on making music in Detroit half a century ago. This time it's The Volumes, a phenomenal vocal group who scored an instant hit with their first single, I Love You, in 1962. Eddie Union, the group's founder and lead vocalist, takes us through his time in the spotlight on this episode. Thank you for listening. Stick around. So I'm here with my friend Eric Sylvanis. He is a fellow record collector and has many more years in the game than I do and a lot more uh, significant collection of Detroit records than I'll ever hope to have. And when he mentioned that he could put me in touch with Eddie Union from the volumes, I was very excited. And then it was a bonus to learn that Eddie is somewhat of a family friend. Yes, he is. You want to tell me a little bit about that connection? Well, my father sells real estate and uh, he ended up doing a sale to Eddie Union for a house. And I can't remember how they got talking about music, but my dad found out later, you know, that he uh, sang on some of the songs that he loved growing up. And then as time went by, they became really good friends. And uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, it's uh, the I Just Can't Help Myself by the volumes. Um, I actually have my dad's copy. I I know it's his copy because there's an S and magic marker on on the label. I believe that's sitting right next to me here. Uh, We'll hear that later in the episode, that exact copy. So thank you to Eric's dad. You know, one part of Eddie's story was uh, his distrust for, it seems like every label or manager that he came across, specifically starting with his first relationship with um, Tony Ewing from Chex. He didn't have a lot of positive things to say about that relationship whenever you look for records in detroit you come across a a lot of copies of i love you on you know the checks label by the volumes you know um so it was a very popular local uh song and i think that was in 1962 i i think with tony ewing something went on you know i don't know about their contract but i remember seeing contracts before from uh other labels around that time period and i think the artists were only getting paid like two cents per copy of record Mm-hmm. So, you know, who knows what, what what happened with that. Can we talk a little bit about uh, I Love You in particular? You know, that's a song that is not tough to find and, you you know, maybe still gets played somewhere on some AM oldie station. It was, a, it, I think, reached number 22 on the Billboard chart when it came out and it was a, a pretty well-received hit for the group and it was mm-hmm. the first record. One of the things that I think is interesting about it is it's a Popcorn Wiley production. Mm-hmm. So, what can you tell me about Popcorn Wiley, or our listeners that aren't familiar with that name? Well, Popcorn Wiley, I believe, got his start. Maybe not his start, because I know he had a he had a record on Northern uh, with Johnny Mae Matthews, and then also, you know, he went on to be on Motown. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Popcorn and the Mohawks. He's got a record on Motown. It's my favorite version of Money. Oh, that's you know a great that one. I have a copy of that too. Wow, <laughs> it's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. really good. You know, he definitely got around town and was doing lots yeah. of production for uh you know many mom and pop labels you know a lot of them even just one record out on the label i love the story that eddie told us about the suitcase as the drum 
it's written that it was Popcorn Wiley that was playing that suitcase with a drumstick, but mm-hmm. um, he revealed when we were talking to him that it was actually Melvin Davis. I ran into Melvin maybe a week and a half ago, and I asked him, and he just lit up. Really? He was just a session drummer for them, and that story about, you know, just kind of like faking it till you make it. You get in the studio, the (laughs) drums don't sound good, what are we going to do? Try banging on that suitcase, and magic Uh happens. Wow. Listening to the record, if you didn't know that, you would never be like, are they banging on luggage? What is that sound? (laughs) It just somehow fits with the song. It's just this perfect compliment, but, you know, knowing that story and just enhances it for me now. Hey, Tony, Tony, Tony. You know, if, you know the ending? You know the ending you was talk about? Yeah. Well, you want to, we, we haven't tried it yet. Yeah. <clears throat> <clears throat> I'm Eddie Union from the Volumes. We got together in 1959 or 60, and we were a combination of two groups. And uh, one of the groups, they, they broke up, and so we kind of joined forces. Me, Joe Tavillian, Eli Davis, and Ernest Newsom, we all went to the uh, same high school. Ernest and Eli, they had a group. And then me and Joe, we had a group. And so they group broke up and then the two groups, we merged together. And, and because how we got the name of the volumes, we was all sitting around trying to brainstorm and trying to think of a name. And the music was up kinda loud. I said, Joe, I said, turn that down, you know. He walked over and he went He said, What about the volume? And that's how we got the name. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's how we got the name. And after we got established, we just let it go. You know, all the places we went, sell out. Jam pack had had our name out in lights, and uh, people lined up and everything. We just kids. How old were you? Do you think? I was. About 16, 17. Oh wow! So still in high school? No, I was out. Okay. I was I was the first one graduated. I came out in '59, and that's why we got started. Oh, I love it! I love it! I love it! My little angel. Were you just singing a cappella, or you would have a band accompanying? No, we were singing a cappella. That's the thing that always struck me about the volumes, especially here. Once I started hearing the acapella stuff, is you guys had such complimentary like set of voices that came together, and it was just really unique sounding. Even even at a time when there were a lot of vocal groups and a lot yeah. of kind of duop styled music, you guys really stood out to me. And I just wondered what you attribute that to. Is that just the right set of guys getting together, or I were... guess you could say that. Okay, so. I'm just curious, how, how did you even go about doing the arrangements? Well, back then, on the, I wrote most of those. Because I did, I wrote I Love You, but for year, years before that. Then uh, all those on the acapella, I, did a, I wrote a lot of those. Some of them I wrote when I was like 15 years old. How long have you been singing? Oh, all my life. 
Were you singing in church and stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was the leader of the junior choir. Yeah, and uh, my mother, she was, she sang. Like, like I said, my daddy sang. It was just it's in the family. And yeah. Um, in between. <coughs> keep, keep the keep the timing, man. It's hard. Play like Smokey Doo. Over in Canada, and uh, and we were doing a cappella, and that's how we we met our manager, Tony. I mean, I couldn't stand him, <laughs> and I didn't trust him. Tony, you mean? Yeah, I didn't trust him at all. And so when we signed the contract, I was the last to sign the contract. You know, I was he was he, he he couldn't stand me either. I couldn't stand him. He didn't like me because. I was young, I was arrogant, I had good sense, didn't care. And I told him, I said, I don't trust this guy. You know, and I was right. He read off something. I said, explain it to me in your own words. Every time he says that, I said, explain it to me in your own words. Then after a while, I said, well, I'll let you know and I'll leave, walk out. <laughs> you know, I didn't like him. But uh, it turned out the contract was none avoid anyway. It was underage. So we did our first recording in 1962. But we were lucky. Cause that, I love you. It stayed number one in Detroit for like five weeks. Yeah. Well, we see, you see lots of copies of it out there. Yep. I Love You was the song where Popcorn actually did the percussion, but it was just him banging out a suitcase, right? No. He, that wasn't it? Turns so- out, I was, I was thinking about it with him, but it was Melvin Davis. Oh, the really? Drummer, he was playing because right. I was saying it. I was thinking about the popcorn, but it wasn't. That's what I was telling everybody until we was at, at uh, Dennis Coffee's place and uh, Melvin was down there. We got to talking. He said, Hey, don't you remember? I'm the one that was playing. You know, he was a drummer too. Yeah. He said, Yeah, I'm the one that was playing the suitcase. And I thought about it. I said, Damn. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. what do you, how does that come about? Did you. Arrange the song having some kind of percussion in mind, and you just got there and you're like, Well, a suitcase will do. Or was that always the idea? We didn't have a drummer, right? So, when you get in there, who's like, All right, you know what we need? We need somebody banging on that suitcase, yeah. So, uh, Popcorn mentioned it, and so Melvin he was there and he played the uh, played the suitcase. That's genius. can't say the first time, but I can tell you different times. Yeah, we sure. was in Baltimore once. We were there, we were standing in this hotel, and next door to the hotel, they were having a party. And they were playing I Love You. I was like, hmm, they don't know, we right here, right there. <laughs> and then, like, up and down, walking up and down the street in Chicago, out on the highway, on the turnpike, I was hearing I Love You. 
At one time, I heard it was on three different stations at the same time. So Harry Balk is a name that should be familiar to listeners of previous episodes. He was a producer and A&R man who had success with Little Willie John and Del Shannon and a number of others by the time he came across the volumes. He put out records through Twirl, Impact, and Inferno, as well as his production company with Irvin McConnick, MB Productions. Um, later in the 60s, Barry Gordy actually purchased Inferno from Harry Balk and offered him a role at Motown, which he accepted. And this had obvious implications for the volumes, and we're going to hear about those in just a few minutes. But for now, we're at the point of the story where the volumes are leaving checks, and they're fielding offers from a number of other labels, but they elect to stay local and sign on with with Harry and Irving and uh, launch this next chapter of their career with their company. One other name that's going to come up in this next part is Duke Browner. He was a songwriter who worked with Harry and Irving during this period and wrote a number of the volume sides. And as Eddie tells it, he helped guide them through this transitioning away from, you know, the doo-wop vocal group of their early records and into the more familiar soul kind of production that uh, a lot of the groups of the mid to late 60s were utilizing on their records. Did you leave checks because you got hooked up with harry balk or when- yeah well after we sued uh tony we got out of it mm-hmm. and we went on and we put out some resumes and columbia capital vj stack all of them wanted us mm-hmm. what they wanted us to do was send some original copies all original songs yeah like, uh, uh, no Man. no we don't do that and so we wound up getting with Harry and Irvin McConnick. They liked us right off. I mean, a lot of people liked us. So we got hooked up with them. And then we got, when our music changed, is when we got Duke Browner. That's when the whole style changed, you know, from the doo-wop. Now if you want her to be happy and you, you want her to stay, you got to treat her kind and gentle, yeah. We went to uh, we did these in New in New York, and uh, one of the guys in the group he had a bad habit of opening up windows and stuff when before recording. A day before, I don't want no windows open, you know, and uh, he did. I was mad as hell. We got up the name. We were recording in the morning. Man, my throat was messed up, and uh, they was Harry Gun order out getting tea. I'm drinking tea, sucking lemons and all of that, you know. And I was like, glaring at this sucker. I said, man, I told you about that goddamn window, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So we got it out, but I mean, you know. So you said you you guys did that stuff in New York. Was that um, was that just where like Harry and Irving were cutting records? Most of the time we went to New York, or other than that we went to Specialty. In Detroit. Uh huh. In the Boulevard. It used to be the band, 
all the musicians and everybody, the singers, was all recording at the same time. Take one, take two, take 23. Yeah. If one messed up, you had to start all over again. Right. Till they, till, till they start overdubbing. So they would lay the band track. We wouldn't have to be there. Mm-hmm. So when they laid the band track, they got it all on tape. Then, then we sang. And one none of that take twenty three, take thirty five, and all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you prefer one way over the other? Yeah, overdubbing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you bit all night something. One person yeah. to mess up. Yeah. Then the whole thing got to start all over again. Yeah. So they start laying the band tracks, and all we had to do just come in and sing. Only thing about it, about Harry, I used to always try to tell him. I want to sing everything I'm gonna do and everything's high. Everything is high. I said, man, let me do something else. No, babe, nope, nope. I want to come down and do something, you know. It wouldn't bother me or nothing. But I just want to change my style some. Uh-huh. But everything is sky. You know. I mean you had a killer. Oh, falsetto is that the term for that scene high or what would you call it no no it's just what a lot of people don't realize i wasn't singing in falsetto okay i was doing all that all that was natural i don't know much about the terminology so yeah well false is it, 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 it's different you kind of freaking your voice okay. but i was singing naturally all of them i know all, all that was natural i didn't sing falsetto like eddie kendrick's and he sang falsetto, but all mine was, was all in natural. Yeah. So you guys, you did a lot of work at Specialty. Yeah. Uh, a lot of recording work. Yeah. Can you describe that studio? Can you kind of help me picture it? It was on the Boulevard. It was a decent sized studio. Like I said, that's where the Lone Ranger and everything was done there. And uh, you see on the thing, where we, one of the songs we did called Connie Jail, we recorded that there. Mm-hmm. Well, you know when you hear a guy, okay, let's go. Okay, let's go. Is that you? No, that's a cop, a real cop. <laughs> yeah, what's he happened to come in the studio. I said, man, we can use you. And I called him over and everything, and uh, he had the siren go. And when that cop came in, it was perfect. He was grinning all over himself. Our very first show we did was at the Apollo Theater. And to spot the fourth act, after they saw us, mm-mm. they had us, we started opening shows. Yeah, we opened for Ray Charles and stuff, wow. yeah. Yeah, we had a, a nice deal. One thing I that stood out was Baltimore. They had us scared to go to Baltimore. Scared? Yeah, because they were how crazy they were there. Mm-hmm. You know, some people are nuts. When Mary Wills was there, they had turned over her car. That was the only time I'd ever been nervous. I ain't never been nervous on those stage, period. But, soon we got out there, they hit, we hit it off, 
they were crazy about us. You know, and so on our last night, when we were finishing up, they all started chanting, We want the volume! We want the volume! And a bunch of women ran up there on the stage. Security said, hey, guys, go now. So we got out of there. Got it. We had the cab sitting out in the back. We got out there, man. It was just a sea. We were sitting in a sea of people. The girls told me, we want an autograph. We want an autograph. And they were all, all up against the windows and stuff. We just looked straight ahead. Then they stopped fighting. And the cab just crew had to creep, 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 creep. We finally went went down a little dip into the street. Man, that was the best feeling I ever had. <laughs> then we got out of there. But, uh, like I say, it was very interesting. <laughs> so, what were some places in Detroit that you guys would frequent? Did you play a lot in town? Mostly, like here with the uh, Greystone, Twenty Grand, Phillips Lounge. But a lot of stuff we did here wasn't really actually in Detroit. We were doing most of the suburbs. What are some of those spots? Club Hollow Golf Course, Dearborn High School, Grove Point High School, Wall Lake Casino. Yeah, because they didn't have too much for uh, kids here in Detroit. Right. So you were doing more like dances kind of things. Yeah, right. Those okay. were record hops. Okay. So it was like a promotional appearance. Right. So, and were you guys were you guys singing live like a cappella, or did you have a band back then? No, when, when you did the record hops, you just pantomime. Oh, so okay, so yeah. the record would play, and you guys would get up there and sing. So, well, we actually sang too. Yeah, pantomime mostly. Yeah, but if you were doing somewhere like Phelps Lounge, that would be. Like, oh no, that was live. Okay. Oh no, they're just live in a band and stuff like that. You know, what what are some of your prouder moments of your career that you look back on now and you just say, "Wow, that was that was really something." I tell you one thing. I had a chance to sing with the Ink Spots. We went to New York just to we should really shouldn't have went. <laughs> but we were there cutting a demo and while we were there well, the Ink Spots was in the studio, and they heard my tenor, and uh, they wanted me. I had a chance to sing at the Copacabana for a week. They were going to pay me $500, and back in 61, $500 wasn't nothing to sneeze at. I didn't do it, because my manager, they said, but I got to split my money with everybody. Uh-uh. I just, that's why I didn't do it. That was a nightmare. Do I worry? You can bet your life I do. On the way there, now, my cousin, he did a lot of traveling. This was in January. So my cousin, whatever you do, take the turnpike, said, don't go through Canada. This idiot, we going through Canada. <laughs> you know, we coming through, uh, come through upstate New York. I had never traveled before, read a map. But I knew, I, and I looked at the map, I said, man, we're going the wrong way. He go tell me, east is always left. I said, no, man. Like, I was speeding, and the state trooper pulled us over. He said, where you guys going? <laughs> I said, he said, we're going to New York. He said, no, you're headed toward Lake Ontario. We were 50 miles out the way. 
I got off the little two-lane highway, man, and I got on the New York Thruway. That's how we got there. When we left, coming back home, he go right back up, upstate New York. And they had just had 21 inches of snow. Oh, wow. Up in that snow belt. The car breaks down on us. It was 10 below zero, and uh, we threw a rod. There's seven of us in the car, 54 mobile. So we was out there, man, about an hour or so. They pulled us into this town, tow us into the little town called Canada Harry. I don't think they ever seen the black person before. We get up in there, they pull the car in. Then they tell us, well, you guys can't stay in here. We ask about a, a Western Union. They told us they didn't have one. Western Union right around the corner. They lied said they didn't have one. And so come some of the guys, man, look like this it. Look like this. What the hell you mean look like this? It ain't nobody gonna be dying in civilization. <laughs> you know? So anyway, uh, our manager, he gets out, and it's wintertime now. And he went to the uh, Red Cross. And they gave him $100. Right across the street from where we were, was a dealership. We bought a 51 Oldsmobile. And that's how we got home, but it didn't have no heater. Oh, wow. So anyway, we got out just in time, man. They had another 20-something inches of snow. Because when we got home, everybody got out and kissed the sidewalk. <laughs> 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 Between 1962 and 1964, the Volumes put out five more records after that first one, I Love You, was a huge smash hit. They never really recaptured that level of success. Um, by 65, I think the writing was on the wall for Eddie, and uh, they did two more records that year. He was only on one of them. He left the group after I Just Can't Help Myself, which was, uh, I think, one of their finest records, and his last with the group. They went on, they did, I don't know, another five or six records uh, all the way up through 1970, some of which are, are kind of sought after by collectors. But for my money, it's that early period with Eddie Union on lead vocals that really defines the volumes. So I think, yeah, you had one more record with the volumes, if I'm right. It's uh, I Just Can't Help Myself and One Way Lover. Yeah. Is that the last one you did? Yeah. Just, yep, that was the last one I did with them. I liked it. So how long um, after cutting that do you think it was before you left the group? It wasn't too long because uh, what happened, when the contract expired, I wasn't signed. So what they was going to do... Just go to sign me, pay me for the session. But any royalty that I wouldn't get it. So I I said, but I can't do the whole thing. I ain't doing it at all. So that's when I just dropped out. 
And then I got back with him some years later. One of the guys, the lead, he was missing. Nobody know where he was at. And he had a show coming up. So they called me. They said, yeah, man, we can use you, man. You want to, you know, I don't, I don't care. So I got with him and just, hey, I learned all the song. I learned the routine, all that stuff in a matter of a couple of days. Yeah. But till that guy ready to go to, when he was going to Motown, I said, I can't do it. I quit. Because I wasn't dealing with Gordy. Tell me about that. What was what was your reservations? I, just, just, I didn't like I didn't like Gordy, and uh, when they was going, they was Harry going to Motown, and the group was going with him. But see, I wasn't under contract then. I got back while I was singing, but I wasn't under contract. So when they went to uh, Motown, I didn't have to go, cause I wasn't tied to nothing. And so they went they went to uh, they went with Motown. So you left the group again? Yeah. That, that seems to be a theme when I have these conversations with, with other folks from that period is Barry Gordy was a crook. Yeah. Back then, did it was that pretty much the perception of people outside of Motown that were in yeah. the recording industry? Yeah. People, people didn't want to deal. Motown, that's why you think so many people left. Watching from a distance your friends go and record with Motown, do you feel like you made the right choice in stepping away? Do you think that they got Yeah, I made the right sh- choice. Okay. And one day I ain't ever second guess that. No. Because I had a buddy of mine, he went, he, he got hooked up with Motown, and Marvin Gaye was his mentor. And what Gordy would do, he would say, okay, we go cut two sides a year. But see, what did you record? Then he throw it in the can. <laughs> You'll never come out. That's how he was, he was getting the talent, tying up talent. With a golden world. Yeah. He got that, he got golden, took over golden world, made that... Motown Studio B, you know, and uh, but he was just pushing certain people. He'd get you, hey, boom. Can I ask who who was recording under Marvin that never came out? Who's your no, uh, uh-uh. can't tell me. Okay, nope, not at all. But his stuff never came out. Nope, and that happened with quite a few people. He wasn't number the crook. Always a crook. And I just can't help myself. just seems like Detroit as a city just had endless talent everywhere you look. These are people that have made huge contributions to American population. Oh yeah. What was it about Detroit? Do you feel like Detroit was different than other places? It was. (laughs) It still is. It was. I mean it was I mean it was a mecca of of musicians entertainment. You name it. Detroit had it. Did it feel that way to you at the time? Oh, yeah, because it's always been Detroit, is, you know. Some folks might say, well, I'm going to go make a name for myself. I'm going to go to New York or I'm going to go to Chicago. But you felt like Detroit was the spot oh, to they, be. Oh, they, they, all that changed. Mm-hmm. They start coming from New York and Chicago to Detroit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think it is about Detroit that's special? It's special. Yeah. <laughs> so Can't put your finger on it? <laughs> hey. It's kind of hard to say, but it's just like it's just a lot of talent here. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe with the hardship and stuff, with a lot of stuff going on like that, it's, it's it gets inside you, and you got it got to come out. 
and come out in vocals and whatnot. Well, I'm Eddie Union, leader of the volumes, and my first song they recorded was uh, I Love You. This episode of One Record featured the following songs. Angel, Miss Silhouette, Gotta Give Her Love, Why, County Jail, Teenage Paradise, I Just Can't Help Myself, and I Love You by The Volumes, Do I Worry by The Ink Spots, and a split second of Girl Why You Wanna Make Me Blue by The Temptations. Special thanks to Eddie Union for participating. Eric Sylvanus and I interviewed him at his home in Belleville, Michigan on January 15th, 2020. Thanks to Eric Sylvanus for connecting me with Mr. Union and for providing his dad's copy of I Just Can't Help Myself with the Magic Marker S. This episode was produced by myself, Mike Dukevich. It was mastered by David Yurkovich at Balboa Recording Studio in Los Angeles. You can find out more about One Record at onerecordproject.com or at One Record Project on Instagram and Facebook. 
As always, please subscribe to the show if you haven't already and give us a review wherever you find your podcasts. Please help us get the word out about One Record by sharing this podcast with anyone who loves music or history or Detroit or listening to old folks talk, all of the above. There's something for everybody, probably. Until next time, thank you for listening to One Record. Think, you know, old age is a trip. <laughs> trying to remember a lot of this stuff. Does that blow your mind that you know, fifty years later, there's a whole other audience of people that love these really obscure records that you were, well, were doing? I, I knew about it. Yeah. Or even the fact that we're sitting here right now interviewing you. I mean, you're you're so far removed from actually making this music. What do you think it means about the music that people still have this interest in it? Ah, hey. I'm just glad. <laughs> yep. I mean, like I said, it makes me feel good that people still think about yeah, us. That's great. That's I mean, if yeah. you could do it all over again, would you do anything different? <sighs> Trying to think, what would I do different? It worked out, so it's kind of. Uh, <laughs> it was a trip. And wow, this man, so much stuff went down.